This is the story of a group of ruthless 18th century industrialists, the brass makers of Birmingham. These unscrupulous men created a cartel with the sole purpose of total market domination, bankrupting every competitor, controlling the price of raw materials, fixing legislation, and breaking sanctions to trade with Britain's enemies. The group included some of the most famous names of the Industrial Revolution, men such as Matthew Bolton and James Watt. Now, Duncan Frankis, researcher at the University of Birmingham, talks to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs and reveals the truth about these powerful icons of their time. Duncan, we're here to talk about the brass industry in Birmingham and I asked you to bring along some images that would give us a sense of what the industry was about. You brought me this picture of a group of obviously well-off men. Why? Yes, it's not the image you would necessarily instantly think of if I were to bring up the brass trade. A 1792 oil painting by Johannes Eckstein. It's actually of the inside of a pub. A group of gentlemen smoking and drinking together. And the reason I wanted to start with this image is because it highlights a number of themes we're going to be discussing today. Some of the individuals in the painting include William Freeth, who is the pub landlord, but was also a political poet and commentator and man about town. James Bissett, who was a Scottish manufacturer who moved to Birmingham when his family were down on their luck financially. He wanted to make a name for himself. And you also have a surgeon as well. And in this melting pot is where lots of the business transactions were taking place. The brass manufacturers in Birmingham would meet in the Shakespeare or the Leicester Arms or the Swan and discuss uh, local manufacturing. They would discuss national politics. And very importantly, they would discuss international mechanisms, whether that was the French Revolution or the slave trade. And at the heart of lots of the conversations that took place in the pub, was brass manufacturing. And what sort of men are we looking at? A variety of men. You have enlightened figures like Erasmus Darwin, Matthew Bolton, scientists, inventors, so savants who would come up with technologies. But then also you have working class fabricants, as we call them, the grunts, if you will, who were in the workshops making the technologies and the development of a public sphere, which often happened in the pub, is really why Birmingham was so successful, because you have this melting pot of individuals exchanging ideas and discussing politics. Nice men or not? I'd say a mixture of both, but I think a lot of them were publicly nice and privately a bit shady. Why did these men come to be in Birmingham? Was there already a strong brass-making tradition? There were many reasons why an individual might head to Birmingham in the 18th century. It was the town of a thousand trades, so there was lots of manufacturing opportunities. There was an emerging middle class where people could make their fortune. 
There was also religious freedom. The Clarendon Codes of the 17th century had dictated that certain religious groups couldn't do certain things in other urban centres, but people were free to practice their religious beliefs and industrial practices without restriction. There wasn't really a strong brass tradition originally. Birmingham had been famous for iron manufacturing since 13th, 14th century because of the natural resources available to the residents of Birmingham. You have iron ore nearby, you have coal fields, you have the Forest of Arden, as well as the River Ray, which were all needed for metal manufacturers. We know about iron manufacturing from travel diaries in the 15th and 16th century. One man in particular, William Camden, wrote about the town being dominated by iron manufacturers. Swarming with inhabitants and echoing with the noise of the anvils, for here are great numbers of smiths and of other artificers in iron and steel, whose performances in that way are greatly admired, both at home and abroad. Iron and brass products have similar techniques, which were easily transferred. And there was just an international demand for brass products. And Birmingham were catering to international markets. I'd like to direct you to a quote by an individual called W.C. Aitken. Its articles of cabinet and general brass foundry are to be found in every part of the world. Its gas fittings in every city and town into which gas has been introduced, from Indus to the Poles. On the railways of every country and on every sea, its locomotive and marine engine solid brass tubes generate the vapour which impels the locomotive over the iron road and propels the steamboat over the ocean wave. Its yellow metal bolts, nails and sheathing hold together and protect from decay wooden walls of our own and other countries' ships. The thing about brass is it's a very flexible and adaptable metal that can be used in a variety of different industries, which is why it was so suitable to Birmingham, because there were so many industries. So you could use it for decorative purposes. Brass was popular in 17th century France under the famously decadent French monarch Louis XIV, the Sun King, and he used it in the Palace of Versailles and his various other residents. And when Charles II was staying with him, he found a love for this metal, and after Oliver Cromwell had died and the restoration began, Charles II brought brass buckles and brass buttons back to England, and all of a sudden there was a huge demand for brass products, which is perhaps why Birmingham began to move towards brass production. As time went by, because brass is such a flexible and adaptable metal, it could be used for other industries, more practical uses, such as in locks. The British government began to use it in coinage systems, but arguably its most important use was for articles of war and in the Navy. Brass components were used in guns. It was extensively used throughout the slave trade, whether that was in brass manilas, which were used as currency to buy people, or the locks on the chains to enslave people. But the industry that was most lucrative was for sheathing ships underneath the water's edge. 
And the people who controlled that technology had a lot of influence. If you think of how important ships were in the early modern period in discovering the new world, in fighting trade wars, brass was a vital element in a lot of industries. But it's my understanding that Birmingham was not the dominant force in the brass industry originally, it was Bristol. Yes, you'd be absolutely right. In the early 18th century, certainly Bristolian manufacturers had monopolised the brass industry. And that makes sense because of the natural resources available to the Bristolian residents. You have copper mines in South Wales. You have access and transportation links to tin mines and copper mines in Cornwall. So by the 1690s, Bristol had begun to establish brass houses in areas of Bristol, such as Conham and Cruise Hole. And it wasn't until the 1740s or 1750s that Birmingham really started to establish large brass houses that could compete with the Bristolian merchants. But within a few decades of the first brass house, which was on Coles Hill Street, the Turner family established it in about 1741. By 1780, you have over 200 brass houses in Birmingham. Matthew Bolton claims that there are 10,000 individuals in Birmingham of a population of 73,000 at the time who get their income directly from brass or copper manufacturing businesses. Whether this is true is another thing. Bolton had a tendency to exaggerate, but it was clear that it was very important to the Birmingham community. Physically, it begins to dominate the Birmingham landscape. It's a remarkable rise, and they did this in a few ways. You have industrial espionage, which many of them partake in. If you look at the Birmingham brass houses, which are established 50 years after the Bristolian ones, there are striking similarities in how they were created. So stealing ideas... James Watt specifically talks about it in his letters, taking ideas from Jonathan Hornblower's steam engine and applying them to his own inventions. So what Birmingham were good at were taking other ideas and organising them better. And what you have in Birmingham, there are no guild or borough administrators telling people how to conduct their business so they can take other ideas and run with them. But you also have a great deal of cooperation between brass manufacturers and businesses. The Broad Street Brass House had over 200 investors to begin with. And in modern day terms, it would be millions of pounds they poured into it. And they all had an equal say on how it was run. So basically... They set up a cartel. They certainly behaved in that way to groups who threatened their prosperity. And what happens eventually is the Bristolian merchants get tired of the Birmingham merchants stealing their ideas and they try and push Birmingham out of the market. But they are completely unsuccessful. You later have Cornish mining communities try and threaten the Birmingham manufacturers, they also 
get pushed out of the market. And the Birmingham brass founders ensured that they actually controlled the sources of tin and copper. How did they do that? Yes, well, one of the most important links, industrial and political, they made in the second half of the 18th century is with Thomas Williams, the richest man in Wales. And his power didn't necessarily come from his political prowess, but from the fact that he owned the copper mines in Wales and in Cornwall. Thomas Williams was a notoriously unpleasant man. Matthew Bolton wrote about him fairly extensively in his private letters, and not all were particularly positive. The despotic sovereign of the copper trade, a perfect tyrant and not over-tenacious of his word, and will screw damned hard when he has got anybody in his vice. To begin with, Bolton and Watt provided engines for the mines in Cornwall, and in return they got a disproportionate amount of copper back for their businesses. And the alliance between the Birmingham brass manufacturers and Cornish copper mine owners allowed them to drive Bristol out of the market and control it themselves. You say that the Bristolian manufacturers tried to counter this. How did they do that? So one family in particular, the Champion family of Bristol, they try and take patents out for certain products, certain techniques, but Birmingham just completely ignore them. They continue making the products, they continue taking ideas and organising them in a more effective manner. And the Champion family end up going bankrupt because of this. And this is covered in the Oris's Birmingham Gazette, boldly stood forth the champions of industry and, in defiance of oppression, ventured to erect works and risk their fortunes therein. And as you can hear from that extract, the Birmingham manufacturers are claiming to be the victims in this situation. They often portray themselves as victims when, in fact, behind closed doors, you can see they are scheming and working out how to get rid of competitors. And this is a concerted move, and from what I understand, it involves people who are not directly associated in normal texts with the brass industry, people like Bolton. Oh yes, it was a coordinated effort. They would meet up regularly in pubs to discuss how they would get rid of their competition. They wrote to one another extensively, saying how they could deal with these threats. And yes, as you rightly say, the Boltons, the Watts get most of the credit for this, but there are hundreds of individuals who've made a fortune in the brass trade and bring unique skill sets. Samuel Garbett actually writes about this to another industrialist. There are 300 gentlemen who are connected with that association that have more property and more knowledge of the state of general commerce than 300 that might be named in the House of Commons. In this neighbourhood, there are many who have transactions in every considerable town in Europe. I rejoice they have met and united and that I have been a material instrument in occasioning it. What was the political dimension 
that was employed by the Birmingham manufacturers. This is the extraordinary thing. When you look at Bristol's representation in Parliament or Cornwall's representation in Parliament, on paper it would seem Birmingham were on the back foot. But what actually you find is in the absence of elected MPs, which Birmingham doesn't get until the 1832 Reform Act, the Birmingham brass manufacturers are behaving as de facto MPs. They are lobbying in private and in public for Birmingham's interests. And in fact, the Bristol MP, Edmund Burke, often sides with Birmingham on a number of matters over his own constituents. And it could be because Birmingham have made a lot of people a lot of money over the years, or it could be secret meetings that we don't know about. I actually found a letter by Matthew Bolton who discusses himself and James Watt's secret meetings with William Pitt, the Prime Minister of England at the time. Mr. Watt went to London with Mr. Wilkinson on Tuesday evening, and as I have had two summonses from Mr. Pitt, I shall set out tomorrow evening upon the subjects of the iron trade, the Irish trade, and many of the late taxes, which the commercial part of this country are unanimous and violent against. Burn this peace. He directs the person who he sent the letter to to burn the letter afterwards because he doesn't want it getting out that these secret meetings are taking place. So it's the development of a political consciousness of these brass manufacturers that allows them to effectively out-politic the politicians. And what happens in terms of Parliament's reaction to what is going on? Well, they tend to side with Birmingham. You have Robert and Charles Jenkinson, Edmund Burke, William Pitt, all side with Birmingham manufacturers because they respect that they are self-made men. They respect manufacturers and want to encourage them. And it's actually in 1799, during a dispute with the copper miners, in Cornwall and the copper magnate Thomas Williams of Wales, that it all comes to a head. In fact, things get so tense that there is a physical destruction of one another's property between the Birmingham manufacturers of brass and the Cornish miners of copper. Matthew Bolton's Albion Mill in London mysteriously burns down, and his private letters reveal that there is more than a suspicion that the Cornish miners and Thomas Williams are behind it. The only fear we have about the trial is being surrounded by our enemy. And prejudiced men who may do other important mischiefs without being perceived. Therefore, arrange your assistance properly night and day, and set one guard at the fire door and ash hole. Let no person into the house except those who are especially appointed and the fewer the better, as we fear confusion. Let some person constantly watch the pithead to see that nothing be thrown down. This highlights how tense and important these issues had become, and as a result of the violence, economic battles and war of words, Parliament are forced to intervene. And the Birmingham manufacturers produce a political masterclass of exaggeration and slander and propaganda, They actually have the King's printer 
Andrew Strahan printing propaganda and handing it to politicians as they're going into parliament. So they respond very well to it. And Birmingham, once they have made a demand, generally get what they want. And in 1801, there are extensive reforms to import and export laws because of the pressure Birmingham manufacturers are putting on Parliament. This shows how cutthroat these manufacturers could be. Thomas Williams demands that copper prices go up. He owns copper mines. He wants to make more money. But obviously for the Birmingham manufacturers, this eats into their profit margins when they're making products. So they demand to Parliament that import tax on copper from foreign sources is taken off. This allows them to buy copper from Germany, from Ireland, from Scandinavia, and means that they don't need Thomas Williams anymore. And it completely cuts him out of the monopoly that he'd once been a part of. And the Cornish tin mining? The Cornish tin mining declines as well. And the reason for that is because Birmingham had been politicking and cutting them out of the market. You mentioned the American Revolutionary Wars and you said earlier that brass had strategic importance. Yes. This period of history, Britain is at war with somebody, notably the French or the Americans, for most of this time. Mm -hmm. Yet Birmingham was profiting from those markets. Can you expand on that? Birmingham manufacturers showed a remarkable lack of loyalty to England in many respects. During the American Revolutionary Wars, they had made a lot of money by establishing brass houses on the east coast of America, most notably in New York, in Washington DC and Philadelphia. And for the rebels, they were providing gun parts, drums, trumpets and decorative wear for horses. But of course, they are literally fighting the English government. But Birmingham openly lobby to allow them to continue their trade. And this causes a lot of resentment with a lot of the population of England, as this letter into the London Gazette demonstrates. Birmingham, like other large towns, is not without those toad-eating sycophants who, from a prospect of self-emolument, would lick the hands of a bloodthirsty minister and rejoice at the suffering of their fellow creatures. But they also have links with revolutionary France. They have links with the Dutch, both countries who supported the American rebels and are actively at war with England at various points during the 18th century. And Birmingham have been supplying them with copper sheets for their ships, for gun parts, and they don't seem to really have any interest or loyalty to the British government in this respect. Is it true that we've tended to downplay the importance of North America, Africa, these external markets, and also the wars that were being fought by Britain at this time on what is happening here in Birmingham and its industries? I think Birmingham's been far too humble about 
the contribution it made to wider processes throughout the Atlantic world. When you think of what was happening in the 18th century, the huge social upheavals that were taking place in America and France, the slave trade in Africa, you have the Latin and South American wars of independence as well. Birmingham have connections to pretty much all of these movements. And we've tended to just focus on Birmingham's contributions to the national economy, but there are a lot of fascinating avenues for us to go forward with and say Birmingham was supplying the guns for the French Revolution. Birmingham were sheathing the ships that were taking the slaves to North America. And maybe it's an uncomfortable history at times, but Birmingham was actively participating in these huge social and political movements of the 18th century. So how did these international connections, this international dimension, affect the attitudes and practices of the brass manufacturers here in Birmingham? Well, if you look at the historical literature, you would think that Birmingham was insular, unconnected to the rest of the world, and that the manufacturing processes were a product of that. But in many ways, the manufacturers in Birmingham were reactionary. They were reacting to the revolutions taking place. They were reacting to what commanders and navies wanted from their ships. So hulls had traditionally been wooden, but as they were going to the Caribbean, the hulls would degrade. So copper technology, bolt and sheathing technology, was developed in Birmingham. And in fact, Sir Gilbert Blaine of the Navy commented that this technological advancement made by two industrialists in Birmingham was the beginning of a new era of the Navy. And when you think what the Navy were doing in this time period, this is when Britain ruled the waves. So if we come to the 1810s, the 1820s. What is the comparative size of the brass industry in Birmingham and Bristol? The Bristolian market has declined significantly. It's not to say it's completely disappeared and Bristol continues to thrive as a port town in various other industries, but in terms of the brass industry and copper, Birmingham has very much taken over and continues to dominate a lot of the Atlantic markets, whether that's in North America, South America, or Africa. The Galton family, who are Quakers, notoriously made guns for Africa with brass products. So Birmingham goes from strength to strength throughout the 19th century. And in many ways, the brass manufacturers of the 18th century laid the foundation for manufacturing success, but also political movements like the 1832 Birmingham Political Union. When we in Birmingham talk about the Industrial Revolution and we talk with pride about people like Bolton and Watt, these monumental figures of the Industrial Revolution, we see them as almost industrial saints. Yes. You're painting a very different picture of the realities of business life. Absolutely. I think there was 
two sides of a lot of these individuals, the public image they displayed, and something I haven't really mentioned so far is how adept they were at propaganda, at portraying themselves in a certain light, whether it's in newspapers or booklets they produce themselves. But when you look at their private correspondence, they are cutthroat capitalists. Their loyalty lies with their customers, whether that's the American revolutionaries or in France or the slave traders. And that's why they were so successful. It doesn't make sense to ignore that side of them. Why haven't we previously given the emphasis that we should to the history of the brass industry in Birmingham? The individuals in Birmingham like to keep their secrets to themselves and pass knowledge down their family. And that's very interesting, but it makes it difficult to put together a history. And there's no one collection of brass manufacturing. It's scattered throughout the archives, the Library of Birmingham, in the Black Country Museum, Soho, and someone's had to piece it together. I've been lucky to have the opportunity to go and do this, and that's probably why no one has written an extensive history so far. Thank you very much indeed for giving us an insight into this forgotten area of Birmingham's industrial history. It's been fascinating. Thank you for having me. You can find much more about the brass industry and the pivotal role of the English Midlands in the Industrial Revolution which shaped modern Britain at our website, www.historywm.com and our sister site, Revolutionary Players, www.revolutionaryplayers.org.uk.